Welcome to another episode of the Iga and Carlos Tennis Show, episode five. Uh, Roland Garros in the books, uh, another title for Iga Svantec, as well as lots to talk about as far as Alcaraz is concerned uh, and his semifinal against Djokovic. Plenty of other topics to discuss, but joining me to, to do it all is my co-host here, Damien. Damien, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Um, of course, we actually had both Iga Svantec and Carlos Alcaraz making the semis which we discussed on the, on the previous episode. Maybe only one of them got the title, but as we mentioned a few times, like losses don't really bother us here because they don't hurt what we're trying to do. Um, sometimes there's even more topics after the losses after the, than, than after the wins, right? Like if Iga Świątek beat Karolina Muchova 6-2, 6-2 in the final, there wouldn't be much to talk about. And yet, of course, as it turned out, we actually have so much to talk about when it comes to both Alcaraz and Świątek. Yeah, so I guess let's just go bigger picture first. Let's talk about the achievement as a whole. This is Iga's fourth major title. She's just turned 22. This is her third Roland Garros title. I think she's the second youngest to have ever won, to win her third Roland Garros title. The, the youngest being um, Monica Selesh, who won it at 18 years of age, which is still a mind-blowing statistic. But nonetheless, uh, where do you kind of think this puts Iga in the larger pantheon of all-time greats or just where do you kind of see this domination going because at Roland Garros right now she has she has a stellar record of 28 and 2 and you know just dropped just the one set basically this whole championships so yeah how, how dominant is she I mean this is basically Rafael Nadal pace right um, you know, to win three by the age, by the age of twenty two, as he said, they are also born in a very at a very similar date, which kind of makes counting um, easy. But at the same time, uh, you know, you never know if it's going to last. This is the best of three format, so maybe in a way it's even more. Um, maybe if it, maybe it's even more of a domination. But yeah, we definitely mentioned a few times already that like on slow clay, the competition on the WTA tour hasn't been the strongest the past few years. So, you know, who's to say that it's not going to continue? Um, last year, she was the overwhelming favorite to win the French. This year, she was also the overwhelming to win, the favorite to win the French. And like bearing something extraordinary, she's also going to be the overwhelming favorite to win the French in 2024. And um, yeah, I mean, to, to win four already is, is insane. Obviously, with the sort of consistency at the top that she has produced over the past year and a half. Um, you can definitely, you know, start thinking about like that double digit numbers for her or something like that. Um, is it going to happen? You know, there are so many factors at play. Maybe she uh, declines. Maybe there are uh, there. There's going to be you know, a new competition that is going to rifle her. But for now, this is the sort of pace that she's going for. And um, yeah, I mean, Ron Garros every single year, she's going to be the favorite until something very unexpected happens. I think, or until a, a new very dominant player shows up on clay. Yeah, I think in terms of this being one of the more fulfilling titles uh, for, for Shuantek, I think this one has to be right up there at the very top amongst the four majors that she won just because she had to deal with that adversity in the final. And being honest, I wasn't entirely sure how she would respond to it. Being 6-2-3 love up, playing Mohova, who obviously saved the match point against Sabalenka, went on that you know five-game stretch. Such an unlikely... Um, such an unlikely event that we would have been talking about Mohova as the finalist probably before this tournament started, even though many of us were considering that, you know, she's a very dangerous dark horse. She could potentially go, go pretty deep, but uh, 
but now this kind of I guess it, it solidifies Mohova as a as a top tier player and probably someone who would have been permanently a top ten player had she been healthy and it not be for the injuries. So we never really got to see her full body of work. But in this final, you know, it seemed like the slice wasn't working very well for the first uh, set and a half. And Shantek just came out a lot stronger. Mokova misfiring quite a lot, pretty erratic in the very beginning. But after she went down three love, I mean, she just pulled off some amazing tennis in terms of her, especially tactically. I thought her forehand down the line was brilliant. Um, she started just trusting that as a lot lot bigger of a weapon. She came, we know about the amazing net play and the coverage of that, but then she just started using the slice, I felt like, just a lot smarter and just putting it in more awkward positions for Shvantec on the court, forcing her to come forward, which is something she's still not that yet comfortable with. I think that was another kind of takeaway of mine is that, you know, um, Bukova, I think, like Barty, was sort of capitalizing on an area of Shvantec's game that needs to become more secure. And so that's like, you know, finishing points at the net. I thought uh, she could have done a little bit better of a job with her approach shots and just putting away a lot of those volleys. And Mukova asked those questions a lot. And um, and I think uh, to her credit, she actually found a way, especially in the third set when she was down a break twice. Um, uh, and actually it was her clutch serving that got her out of a really big game at 4-all, which I thought was huge because 4-all, 30-40, they've each kind of traded two breaks. And... Uh, Mohova hits this really short slice, almost like a semi-drop shot, and forces Shvantec to dig a, a really uncomfortable ball for her, low at her feet on the backhand, and then she doesn't even have to hit a volley there. And then she hits two unreturnable serves, and then Mohova is suddenly serving to stay in the match. So I thought that was a huge key in the match for Shvantec to go on and eventually win 6-4 in the third. But what did you sort of make of all the patterns that we saw in play, and maybe about Mohova and just what this title would mean for Shvantec just having to overcome that adversity. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a pretty fun one because both players kind of do something that the other part, like the rest of the tour is not used to. With Shvantec, it's just this combination of spin and uh, pace on her shots, where, whereas most of the tour, even if there are powerful players, they just sort of slam it, they are flat hitters. You don't really get that heaviness. And yeah. Mukhova, of course, like the, the variety, the repertoire of skills that she brings to the court. And yeah, I mean, all of Shvantec um, is basically so great at like trading blows with players off the ground. And Mukhova just did everything not to do that, to take it, to take that baseline um, play, to, to take these patterns away from her. Of course, as you said, the first set and a half, Mukhova, I guess he just, she just sort of felt that she needs to, you know, she needs to press she needs yeah. to just be out there and play, blast every ball and, you know, not give Świątek any time to react. And actually later on, as she uh, she improved these tactics, it turned out that Iga can also get very tight, which um, definitely she did. Uh, was there like a degree of um, good fortune in this comeback? Probably, yes. There was that one volley, for example. I can't remember which point it was, but I think it was at 3-4 and allowed Świątek to get the break back in the third which, you know, you could see that the technique is clumsy, but, but it worked on yeah. the occasion. Many other points like this in the match Fiontek lost because, yeah, Mohova just learned, just lured her forward. And um, even though sometimes, you know, when you're at the net, you should be the one controlling the point. That's not really the case if, like, Mohova just, yeah, invites you there. And um, especially with like the short slice or the dropper. And yeah, Fiontek just doesn't really know how to handle because she's also not facing these sort of players. And yeah. no one really is on the tour because yeah they they, they are they are very um rare bunch right now, 
And um, after all, um, yeah, that that 30-40 point that she won was very was, was like super key. She didn't overhit that backhand. She just sort of pushed it over the net in a way, maybe flipped it, which was um, quite an impressive thing to do, I guess. You know, to to have that sort of awareness in that point because clearly both players, like at at that stage, it was just really managing the situation, and um, yeah, both players were just trying to hold off their nerves. I think this loss would have really hurt um, Sviontek. I'm not sure, you know, what the long-lasting impact could be of something like this, but I think with all the records that she has at Ron Garros and um, the dominance on clay over the past couple of years, losing a match like this from 6-3 to love up, where, you know, it was supposed to be the other player who was going to be nervous. It was supposed to be the, the other player who was going to um, also feel, start feeling it physically. And whereas she, she actually did the, definitely in the third set, um, it she was still you know going toe to toe and it wasn't why she lost that much. So I think this loss would have been very hurtful. Um, it's just you know a very fine margin. I mean a very, a very thin margin between um, actually losing something that can maybe even hurt your mentality for the next few months and then you know then you come back and you have this joy, relief, every single good emotion and uh, actually it's one of her biggest wins right now I think. Um, maybe maybe some someone will disagree, you know, because Muhova hasn't been a top player, but you know clearly she has the talent to do it. Um, I don't think anyone was really doubting that either. It's just like more confirmation of it. So so it has to be one of Shiontek's biggest wins. And yeah, in most of these Ron Garros matches that she won, she hasn't really faced any adversity whatsoever. Um, she lost sets to to Halep, right? She lost the set to Puig and won. She lost the set to Zhang, and she lost the set to Sakari. Where only really in the in the um, I guess maybe against Puig you could say that she like overcame the adversity against Zhang we didn't really see the rest of the match because Zhang was hampered by something right Halep Sakari she lost to so it's it's basically her first like huge comeback since she became a top player because I'm not really counting the one against Puig I suppose you know 2019 that was such a long while ago. But it was like her first real comeback at the French, which I think is huge and potentially could really help her in the future. Um, definitely, we also saw that she wasn't as mentally ready for this as maybe we thought that she would be. You know, I guess I never really figured that she was going to be so tight in the final, but getting through it is just only an asset for her, I think, in the upcoming editions, upcoming events as well, because this this is also bound to help her confidence-wise in the next part of the season. Yeah, definitely all true. You know, I will say, though, having watched the first set, Mm-hmm. It didn't feel that one-sided. Like, you know, it was a 6-2, but there was there were two or three games where it was like, you know, five, they had like five, played five games and it was already like 35 minutes in. Like you could really see Mukova could grow into this match and could make it a a, a good compelling contest. And I think she was asked in her press conference, like what was sort of the, the difference in the match or like, mm-hmm. you know, how did you kind of see the match play out in the beginning also? And she said the 6-2-3 love didn't have much to do with her being nervous. It was actually just that, that uh, extreme confidence that Iga brings and she kind of pushes you to go for more, like you were saying, and just press a little bit or just, it wasn't even nerves or the the occasion yeah. or anything like that because Mohova is a player who is, rises to the occasion. She's 5-0 and against top three players coming into this match and, you know, she has those really big wins and she's made it deep in majors before. So that was a good confirmation, I guess, that uh, she really grew into the match and made it made it really, really difficult. But I think for Iga, what this now does is I'm very curious about the grass. That's the next one for me that I think I really want to make sure we hit on today just because, 
you know, I mean, last year she had that amazing streak, right? She had 35 matches won by the end of the Roland Garros and then played those two matches at Wimbledon and then lost to Cornet. But that's when you could really see the air go out of the balloon, if you like, and played uh, just a very tired looking second set and just deflated and not really, you know, didn't it didn't really seem like she was going to go deep at Wimbledon. But this year, I I do wonder, uh, and she also didn't play any of the warm-ups last year as well, but I think this year I'm very curious to see if that confidence from Roland Garros actually carries her into some good form if she can get two or three matches in the week before Wimbledon against some good players. Maybe she can actually get to the second week, and it's not the most natural surface for her as we've highlighted. Interestingly, you know, I was watching the Muhova highlights from the Prague 2019 match because I actually hadn't seen it at that time. But, you know, Iga used to play with, and, and I also just do remember some of her matches in general before 2020 Roland Garros. And she did used to have quite a bit more variety in her game. A lot of drop shots, a lot more net approaches. I just felt like she was mixing it up quite a lot. And now, and her strengths weren't as good as they are now. But now if, now the strengths are, you know, next level good, like the best on the WTA, but she doesn't, she doesn't really have those drop shots anymore or, you know, or that kind of variation to disrupt the the kind of play that uh, some other players maybe can capitalize on on uh, on grass like a Jabor or Mukova. So I do wonder how much she and her team will sort of look to add those things at the same time, not really change the bread and butter of her game. And we'll see if that really um, comes to fruition on, on the grass where I feel like it could help her the most. On hard courts and clay, I think she can pretty much play her normal, very good game and just expect to have pretty decent results so what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean we've talked about it before that it's like it was like a conscious effort to eliminate basically the drop shots like any sort of variety from her game yeah. uh maybe if um well and the opposition has already stepped up but like with with the opposition stepping up with um yeah maybe just trying to play on grass as well or in general like in conditions she maybe isn't that um, well, in terms of grass, maybe it's even isn't even that familiar with, despite you know winning in junior Wimbledon. But like, um, yeah, conditions she's not that accustomed to. Um, maybe it will be something that that would be I know reintroduced to her game. I don't know if they have enough time realistically to do it, <laughs> because you know it's just a couple of weeks before she's gonna play in Bad Homburg. So, uh, Bad Homburg, right? I, I think I'm yeah. right about it. Yeah. So, um, so it's just a couple of weeks. I don't know if they they are gonna do it. Uh, in general, I do expect that she should probably look better at Wimbledon than she did last year. You know, even before that Cornet match, she had this clash with Patina Makerkov, where she was already mm. almost out of the tournament. You know, even uh, one the streak could have ended one match earlier. Definitely agree that in the um, in the actual uh, clash with Cornet, there were like maybe two games that she played well and actually was willing to construct points. Otherwise, there was no. Um, absolutely no fight. She was just, you know, throwing out every, every single forehand. And um, I don't think this is, you know, the pinnacle of how she can play on grass. I definitely think she can play better than this. Uh, having a warm-up event will help. Um, but I'm also not on the team, you know, who criticized her last year for not having that warm-up event. Because if you've just yeah. won 37 uh, matches, sorry, 30, 35 before Wimbledon, 35 matches in a row, you, you need the rest. And I'm not even saying physically, but you even need the rest mentally. Maybe she even needed more rest, but of course she's not going to skip Wimbledon. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think it was perfectly fine to skip a grass court warm-up last year think it's definitely also good to actually not do that this year like actually play mm -hmm. uh, a grass warm-up i don't think it's 
extremely vital that she wins in Bad Homburg, but it's probably just vital that she gets like two, three matches in. And yeah, just just finds her footing on grass again, I guess. I don't know if to say again, because, you know, she, she won Wimbledon in juniors, but many times we've seen that perhaps not always this is the best um, way to show, you know, on which surfaces you're going to be better in the pros um, yeah. after that. And also, I think maybe the extra pressure that she has right now on herself, you know, the fact that she is still the world number one, but after Wimbledon, this can change already. This is also something that will influence her in some way. I don't know if this will be a positive influence or a negative one, but definitely like Wimbledon will be a more important event for her than it was last year, you know, because she hasn't had that sort of level of domination. She still is the number two in the WTA race. I mean, just like 500 yeah. points or something like that behind Sabalenka, uh, but she hasn't had the, that sort of level of domination. She hasn't had the win streak. She wasn't um, perfect on clay in terms of, you know, not losing a single match, which last year she did after Wimbledon. So I think the, the, the definitely the event in London this year will be more important for her. Now, whether that is actually something that will block her a little bit, I, I don't know, but I think it can also, you know, inspire her in a way because that number one ranking is like still very much in reach for, for Sabalenka, even for Rybakina. Um, who of course is not defending the the points for winning the title last year. So I think this will be um, some sort of a, mo- a motivation boost for all three of them. And um, yeah, it it should be a much better season for on grass for Iga. And even if she would lose, like I don't know, uh, let's say quarterfinal or semifinal in Bad Homburg and like a quarterfinal at Wimbledon, forefront at Wimbledon, it would still be better than 2023. And like in the long run, this will help her anyway. Just getting these, I don't know, 10 matches on grass per year. Maybe 10 is a bit of a stretch. That That's already much, but like um, that's already quite, um, uh, you know, a, f- a few like compared to most players, I suppose. But let's say, I don't know, five, six matches on grass every single year. And this is all going to work out better for her in the future. Yeah, uh, definitely echo your sentiment about last year and this year versus, you know, the like criticizing her for not playing any of the warm ups. Yeah. I definitely. But of the was of the opinion last year that she 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 should just rest and gear gear up mentally just because it was such a long streak and winning eight six tournaments in a row like that not having a chance to go back home and just kind of reset as a professional athlete I think you need to use the breaks when you can so I think this year um she's in a in a better position and I actually think pressure wise we're not expecting that much I don't think most people are including herself <laughs> of grass so I think it's in a way kind of a bonus because last year sort of even from this stretch up until the U.S. Open you know that's when we saw understandably a little bit of a lull in her results so I think that that maybe takes some of the pressure off to do well I hear what you're saying about the number one ranking I still think sort of the year-end number one is sort of what matters I think the most uh, now that she's only 500 points behind Sabalenka that's why I think this win was huge at Roland Garros to make that gap shrink a little bit. And also just, uh, even though she didn't actually have to face Rybakina and Sabalenka, um, I still think she was, you know, we saw some more questions asked of her, particularly against Haddad Maya and Goff, to a little bit of an extent, and also in, in, in the final, clearly. So I think um, overall, I think this was a great tournament for Iga. Happy for her and her fans. And of course, congratulations to everyone involved in that. But uh, do you have anything else more to say on Shantek right now or anything about the WTA landscape um, in general? 
Not really. I mean, the the lull that you mentioned, I think this was also part, like part of it was the crazy scheduling, right? The fact that she played uh-huh. on clay for just one week and basically didn't practice on it beforehand in Warsaw. I think, and I can't remember right now, but I think it was right, like yeah. basically two days of practice before uh, before going on the clay in Warsaw. Earlier she played on hard courts. She had that exhibition as well for, for Ukraine. Um, so I think that this definitely hurt her a little bit in the North American hardcore season. I'm not saying this is where she's going to excel, you know, especially Cincinnati. These are not courts that are tailor-made for her. Uh, but at the same time, of course, she can do better there. And um, yeah, I'm just glad that that Warsaw event is moving to hardcore because this will just allow a much smoother progression. That's, of course, after Wimbledon. So that's like a little, uh, a little further ahead. When it comes to the the state of the WTA, I guess uh, we kind of saw that, um, well, um, you're not guaranteed to get these matches like Świątek Sabalenka, Świątek Rybakina. Well, you know what the reasons for that were? Uh, maybe maybe the fact that we don't have the best of five format, you could argue with Świątek uh, Sabalenka. You know, you could maybe argue that Sabalenka probably beats Muhova in the semis. I don't know if that's actually true. You know, all the assets that Muhova has against... Shiontek, she also has them against Sabalenka. Maybe that's yeah. also why she it was like pretty easy for her to like adapt her plan tactically mid-match against Shiontek because it was very similar to, to what she did against Sabalenka. Um, you know, they're not exactly the same type of player as Shiontek and Sabalenka, but when it comes to like what um they aren't comfortable with, they are fairly similar for sure. And maybe it was even easier uh, for her against Sabalenka when like that huge flat hitting power wasn't coming at her. Uh, but but yeah, Rybakina, of course, was a completely different story. She pulled out. Uh, we have no idea if she would have actually made it to the semis, but I guess um, nothing really happened that would have changed my mind that um, the competition on slow clay, it, it doesn't really exist to the extent that it exists in Madrid or Stuttgart. So, um, you know, that's why looking forward into the future, I mean, Świątek should be the favorite for Rome and Ron Garros, like basically every year and um, yeah, that that's that's how it's been probably the last three seasons. Of course, in 2021, it didn't really pan out at Ron Garros, but that's basically how it's been for the past three years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if anything like that changes next year or if the competition level is basically yeah. around around the same. I do think it hurts the WTA that there's only two essentially big events on slow clay. Yeah. And that if they, you know, if there were a few more chances, I think we would see an Overall, a few more contenders that we would say assuredly are at least close to Shriantek's level or around that base. But I, I do think she's the safest bet, uh, for sure. But I guess moving moving on, let's talk about Carlos. Um, obviously, we spoke after his match against Tsitsipas, and we were previewing the match against Djokovic, and we both sort of were making him the favorite going in. But uh, and and then also, you know, you know, in this in this match. Obviously, Djokovic comes through in a four-set win, 6-1, 6-1 in the third and fourth sets. But we all know that it was one set all, and it was one all in the third set before Alcaraz felt some cramps and physical issues that uh, that came about. Um, reasons, you know, 87 degrees, humid, uh, hot, uh, you know, extremely physical first and second set, obviously. Uh, I think it was also a combination of nerves and excitement and just energy from the first two from the first two sets uh, in combination with playing Novak, who has been in there, who's been in it was his forty fifth semifinal, if I'm correct, and this was Alcaraz's second. 
So I think you have all those other other factors going, and then he obviously had to forfeit that one game, and then was really a shell of himself for the rest of the match. So we didn't get to see what could have actually happened had they been playing at their best because the match was pretty much up in the air at that point, like 50-50. I didn't really have a clear favorite at that, in my opinion. I did feel like Djokovic had very good tactics, obviously, and came into the match very well prepared, having done his homework. But what were your thoughts on the first two sets that we saw in general and just kind of what you make of this result overall? Yeah, I mean, Alcaraz was definitely very nervous from the get-go. You could see it. Perhaps yeah. we, at the time, still didn't know that it was going to impact him in this way. Because I, I do think that the cramps were probably a result of this. You know, he has played long matches before. Uh, maybe it wasn't so hot, but like still going down after two hours, even with Djokovic. But at the same time, like this match was not overly physical, I think. In terms of like just the rallies they were playing, uh, Djokovic came out, of course, with a very aggressive game plan, which I think everyone, you know, correctly predicted. Um, I do think that by the time we reached the end of the second set, Alcaraz was like clearly he had all the momentum, not only because he won it, but he actually started winning so many of the longer rallies, uh, played some of his best forehands of the match in the past few games, um, in in the last like last few games before before the cramps started happening. Um, so I do think that he he was definitely the one like with the slightly higher chance of winning the match, but of, of course it was once at all, so anything could have happened from there. Um, I I do believe that the nerves, which um, yeah, you you barely see him so tight as he was in the first few games. Um, he was also like um, you know, constantly I don't know if to call it screaming at each other uh, and you know at himself. But um, yeah, definitely it wasn't like the regular behavior we are used to seeing from him. It meant a lot mm -hmm. to him. It meant a lot to Djokovic as well. But Djokovic was just better equipped to handle it, I suppose. And yeah, from the third set onwards, of course, it wasn't really a match. Especially the third set, Alcaraz was just physically unable to play. I, you know, I was, I, I thought that he was like on the verge of retirement. He started moving a bit better in the fourth, which was actually not reflected by the scoreline until the very last moment. So, um, you know, still, he was he was moving better, but like he, he was still unable to compete. Of course, Djokovic had some sort of nerves that you usually see when like a player realizes that the guy on the other side of the net is, is hampered. The other guy loses clarity in terms of tactics, in terms of, you know, what he should be doing against an injured opponent. So basically, it, it became just a big mess. Definitely one of the most disappointing matches, um, I don't know if of, of all time, but you know, that I remember in terms of the hype that was around it. And I, I saw a lot of people saying that, like, um, the match itself wasn't disappointing, but they're disappointing with the media and, like, the hype they built because that that, that was wrong. Like, no, <laughs> it just wasn't, you know. We're, we're meeting one um, great, I mean, clearly of the present, not even of the past, and the future great. Um, who knows how many more times they're actually going to play each other. They're also meeting in the Grand Slam Semi, a match that could very well decide the who's the award number one. Of course, Djokovic still had to uh, still had to win the final to get there. So I don't think there was too much hype around it. I mean, just didn't deliver. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Alcaraz is 20 years old. So of course, he's going to be better physically. I hope we are going to get one more Grand Slam meeting between them. There's definitely going to be some unfinished business on, on Carlos's side. But of course, Djokovic, it's not like Djokovic wasn't extremely strong and he he definitely just gathered everything that he had mentally um, to, to, you know, to get into this match, to play much better than he did against Kachanov or Davidovich Fokina. And that's what he does. That's what he's been doing over the past 10 or 10 years or so, if if not longer. And, um, you know, it, it's not like I'm saying that 
he was absolutely going to lose if Alcaraz didn't have the cramps. At that point, you could probably just say that it was a 50-50 match with perhaps Alcaraz having the slight edge because he, he really seemed to, you know, just find some more clarity in terms of how he should play. He he was getting to the forehand a lot more and um yeah, just actually having it as a weapon, which maybe at first uh, wasn't really the case in this match with Djokovic dominating most of the rallies, but yeah, they played two very even sets and then his body broke down, which um again, I mean, 20 years old, 36 years old, did not really matter back then. Yeah, and that's something Djokovic is so good at because his physical decline is that non-existent that, that, that heavy breathing yeah that's what i was just <laughs> going to say you know that, that heavy breathing that you see the the those little niggling injuries that are not really that serious but you know like maybe happened more more than before but they don't really derail him you know it, it, it doesn't seem like he's still able to outlast most of this generation and it it definitely feels like it's it's the most non-existent of any 36 year old that i've that i've ever ever seen and it it honestly looks like he's going to keep on going for the next two or three years at least just with the pace that he's on and just with the calendar slam you know in sight and also the olympics next year i mean there's basically the only two things that he's you know hasn't done yet in his career and he's already you know statistically the most accomplished tennis player ever so i you know i basically men's tennis, I, I, I I guess. <laughs> yes men's tennis yeah. yes, just to just to clarify but but i mean um I, I mean it's very important to mention the nerves i think because uh, like Alcaraz has has shown that he's a beast when it comes to endurance and physicality because yeah. U.S. Open last year, twenty four hours on court, spent the most time of any other male, any other male or female player, up until that point, uh, to you know en route to the title. And yeah. then also just the you know other matches that we've seen, like when he played Barcelona, he played those two really physical matches, or at least the really physical match against Dimitrov, and then a straightforward match against BCB. But point being, they were on the same day and over five hours of play. And just so, so we know he has it in him physically and endurance wise. It's just, uh, just uh, the, how can he better deal with this situation when if he's in it again? And I think having gone through it this time will be a big uh, learning experience for him because, you know, like you were saying, especially the first set, I felt like he was so tight. It reminded me of that period last year between, uh, you know, Roland Garros and US Open because oh. he actually, he really felt that weight and expectations. On him, and he said it had a lot to do with Djokovic. That's what he said in the press conference. That if you, it's uh, if they're telling you it's the same thing playing against Novak versus anyone, anyone else, they're just lying. You know, those, those were his words because the the pressure and ex- expectation for him to deliver was quite high. He was the favorite going in, so I think that definitely impacted just how he played in general and just the some of the mistakes. You know, we're not quite used to see used to seeing for him. Like what I mean is like seconds of returns on the backhand. Where you know he had like some break chances to get back even in the first set, didn't quite take them. Djokovic was obviously playing at a very high level, um, tactically you know targeting basically plastering him in the forehand corner, and using his backhand on the line and sharp forehand cross court angles that we saw him use against Nadal two years ago. He was doing that very very well, I thought in the match and just overall serving a lot better with his first serve. But I did think that some of those things started to change in the second set. I did feel like Alcaraz was starting finding to play with a lot more joy again, smiling a lot more. Obviously, hitting that ridiculous shot shot of the tournament, I think mm. <laughs> that no look squash shot. Basically, I don't know how to describe it, but um, there was so there was certainly quite a bit of highlights. I did feel like the quality got a lot better in the second set. Was it as high quality as the Madrid final? Probably not. Madrid semi, I mean, definitely not in that league. But I did think it had its moments, and so we 
we missed out on i think potentially another classic yeah but, i mean uh, the drama would have made up for it as well i think um the, the madrid final semi as you said was was definitely much better i think just even in terms of these just these two sets right around garros but if if they just kept going like this for like three more hours we wouldn't care about the quality we only really started thinking about it when you know when it all went downhill yeah Plus, we did also see Djokovic take a medical timeout for his forearm, and we saw some of his serve speeds drop a little bit, which definitely allowed Alcaraz to maybe make some more impact on the return, because up until that point, he hadn't yet broken serve. Obviously, he had four break points in the first set, and he had some chances, and serve for the set even at 5-3, so it could have been 6-3, and then, you know, we never know if any of this actually happens when it comes to his cramps. But I do think, uh, I do think either way, uh, it's not a major major disappointment for Alcaraz he still got to the semis so one round better than last year he's still 35 and 4 in the year he still you know has a decent chance of finishing the year number one so I do think uh, you know I do think he has some good ground to gain in the next four months at these pre-US Open and we'll see how much more of an impact he can have on grass because just like Eva last year he also didn't play any warm-ups and uh, you know he basically just played those exhibition matches and I think I was also feeling it physically after such a long clay season. And I think he, he had some precautionary elbow issues as well. Came into Wimbledon very undercooked. Very, I mean, he'd only played two matches on in his entire career at that point on grass. Coming into Wimbledon Might last year. At Wimbledon and Uchiyama yeah, at and Wimbledon, the, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. 2021. Those were the only two matches for the second round. So I think, uh, and then, you know, got to the fourth round. Lost to Sinner, but I think... Uh, do you actually see see him doing very well this year on grass, given that he's going to play Queens, which I think is crucially crucial for him as well? So yeah, I um have to mention that Alcaraz, of course, played in the juniors a bit you know, on grass, but again, you know, it's it's not it doesn't really mean that much, I suppose. I think he was yeah. in uh, like Wimbledon. Um, I have to check that, but I think he was in like Wimbledon or Roehampton quarters. I think it was Wimbledon actually, um, in two thousand nineteen. Uh, when he, um, or maybe he was in the in the quarters at both Wimbledon and Rockhampton, but of course that that's st- still not really that much, and that was in 2019. Um, I do think that he can he can be really good in grass. I think it's probably easier for him than for Shiontek. even even in that match um, against Medvedev at Wimbledon. I remember that it was just really fun to watch him because he was so aggressive. He was getting to the net a lot, and like his game looked completely different than it did on clay. But it was still, um, I think, fairly competitive despite the scoreline. You know, at the time he just couldn't really um, touch Medvedev, but um, he still left like a good impression. Last year, as you said, he he initially I think planned to play something before Wimbledon, but then of course it didn't pan out um, because of some yeah precautionary issues. And um, then uh, of course at Wimbledon he had that five setter against Struff, where like maybe we would think that okay he's not really ready for it. But then, then again, in the third round, he played he played Otte and was like you know blasting a winner from every single position for ninety minutes. Uh, beat one of the like everyone's dark horses for for that slam. Uh, Otte was having a very strong grass season. I think he made like back to back ATP semis or maybe a semi in the quarter. And um, yeah, he just absolutely crushed him. Also, especially you know Otte, a guy with such a huge serve, and it just didn't make any impact against Alcaraz that day. And after that performance, I certainly. Um, expecting him to get to the uh, Djokovic match, especially you know at the time, given the fact that uh, Sinner didn't really have any grass experience himself 
or like at least had experience, but it was just a lot of losses. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the end it didn't pan out, but um, I was actually, um, jo I joined um, a stream on Talking Tennis a couple of days ago after the final. Well, yesterday, I guess, after the final. And um, one of the guys there, Tom, asked me, like, who are the main contenders at Wimbledon that can stop Novak? And um, it, it, it is a bit of a tricky question, right? Because um, I think in recent years, when we were talking about players who are likely to do well at, at Wimbledon, it was often like someone like Cilic, Berrettini, uh, maybe even Hurkacz. And, you know, these guys, especially Cilic, you know, he's not going to be around. Berrettini today had a, had a disastrous loss to Sonego in Queens. Hurkacz, maybe he is going to be there, but we'll see how, you know, how the grass season goes and like whether we actually still think that he's a dark horse contender for Wimbledon. So my, actually my response was Alcaraz and Medvedev. I know these guys haven't had the biggest Wimbledon runs yet, but I think eventually in the future, they definitely have a chance to... Um, you know, to be even better on grass than than they are right now. And like, if someone is going to trouble Djokovic there, I actually think it will be one of them, you know, if they just play five or six matches and yeah, just get, get much better because they definitely have still lots to improve in terms of their grass games. Uh, Medvedev, I, I, you know, a few years back, I thought he was going to be much quicker about it. Of course, it didn't help that he wasn't able to play Wimbledon last year. Maybe, maybe then it would have looked differently. But of course, 2022 was also not not the best year for for the Russian. But yeah, like still, these three guys who have basically dominated the ATP Tour season so far, I think they're actually also the biggest threats for Wimbledon, and not really the you know, the grass specialists that we usually um, think of, because there also aren't that many, of course, with, <laughs> with grass being such a novelty surface. So yeah, I'm expecting a, a, a better grass season than, than last year. Um, just like with Shiontek, it's good that he's playing the warm-up. I understand why he didn't play it last year, but it's good that this year he, well, we'll, we'll see if he shows up. Of course, there's just one week of break between for the French Open, but I'm assuming that he will be playing in Queens indeed, and it will be good to see him in like, yeah, any other event on Wimbledon because on the professional tour, it has not happened just yet. Yeah, I think I, I agree about Medvedev and Alcaraz being one of the contenders. You know, I did think Medvedev last year, he made a couple of finals. He obviously has won a title before on grass, been to the second week, but uh, but you would think with his game, with his flat ground strokes, with his big serve, and also just you know offensively being a bit better this year, particularly on his forehand, you would think that all of that would lend itself as a good package to do well on grass. So I think yeah. uh, he's he's certainly a, a decent bet to do well, especially because I mean Shapovalov and Kyrgios and Berrettini and just players like that, maybe even Nori, you're just quite not so sure about at this point where they're where they're at in their rear or even just on, just on grass in general, the sample size hasn't been there. Berrettini, of course, has been out. And like you said, today played one of the worst matches I've ever seen against Sonego. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, and it, and it is, it is a very niche type of surface and contenders it only being five, six weeks. It's, uh, it's not nearly, we don't get nearly as much of a sample size, especially also because 2020, I did feel like it hurt some of the young players not having that year because as it is, it's already such a small part of the calendar. So it's going to be interesting, but I definitely think Alcaraz has the game to have the all-court game and the especially with the, he deals with the low bounce pretty well, has no trouble generating pace off of off of the low bounce. I think he's very good at finishing at net, attacking there. Uh, the serve has gotten better. So 
we have seen him his game in general improve quite a bit and so you would think especially nowadays it's not like the 80s where it's like you know basically borg had to play a very different game to win on wimbledon and serve and volley all the time versus on grass stay back at the baseline i think nowadays it's actually quite much more homogenized and you do feel like you can play a lot more from the baseline and still have a lot of success so i mean there's no reason why he can't make a deep run in wimbledon and we certainly, I certainly do expect him to win at least one Wimbledon when by the time his career is, is over, just because I think he is that just that good of a player. But uh, no, it'll be interesting to to see. And you know, the the Queen's field as it is is not as strong as the Halle field. So we'll see if Alcaraz can actually go all the way, maybe win his first title on grass, maybe to even just get three or four matches, kind of like Iga, um, like we were saying in terms of expectations and bad Homburg. But I just I just like that both these players are playing something before Wimbledon and we actually get a taste of where they're at. Yeah, and particularly like in the second week at Wimbledon, you know, it's it's often said that the grass just gets worn out. It's normal. It, it's slower. It doesn't bounce as low. It's easier to move on, uh, which, you know, just basically helps all of these top seeds. So sometimes the the upsets are actually a lot more possible in the in the first week at Wimbledon. So I don't know if Alcaraz plays Cressy in the opening round. Let's say that is that even possible? Will Cressy have have a seed? I'm not actually <laughs> sure, but you know it, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, some of these players yeah. who I don't know Milos Raonic who today had a fantastic showing. I don't think Cressy will be seeded. So um, I think I think he's gonna be uh, he he can actually play Cressy in the opening round. You know, you get someone like this. Or anyone can lose to uh, two guys like this on the grass. Um, if he actually gets to the second week, yeah, it's just going to be easier for him to play his tennis there. And um, yeah, I I, do, I think he is among the best players on tour on the grass, even though he has barely played it. I definitely think that, and and totally agree with what she said about about Medvedev, of course. Yeah, just just with the flat ground strokes and how much more he should be able to do on the offense. I always thought that uh, he actually will be like one of the most dominant forces on the grass and I don't know, win two free Wimbledons hasn't really happened yet. But I think another good point that she brought about that she uh, like brought up is also that, um, yeah, the 2020 season, it was not um, around in terms of the grass. And for some players, it didn't really matter, right? Like Djokovic had already played probably a hundred matches on grass in, in his career. And generally the playing, the players from the previous generation, I mean, they have all, they all have, insane grass court experience compared to the youngsters so for the youngsters not having that 2020 season was actually a lot more hurtful um well youngsters i'm talking relatively like i'm still including guys like medvedev Tsitsipas who haven't shown their best tennis on grass i don't know if they can in Tsitsipas's case but i, I certainly think that medvedev could but yeah not having wimbledon in two of the last three years for wimbledon uh, for for medvedev i mean of course only for russian and belarusian players in 2022 that's a huge hit actually and um, yeah, that's of of course only because of how rare grass is on the is on the tour. Even if Medvedev played like a lot of grass tennis last year, still having a best of five event, it's not the same. Yeah, and of course the movement is very different, and you're not really oh, yeah. sliding. I mean, and also it's like slippery in the first week, and just to just to get that footing and changing directions, it can be quite difficult. I mean, we even saw Alcaraz struggle with that a little bit particularly especially when he's already playing center, a guy who's, you know, can just rush him in general on all surfaces. So it was, that was certainly tricky, but I think just getting used to that movement, that's where you just have to play a lot more matches. And that's kind of the only way. I mean, you can practice as much as you can. You can play three or four exhibitions, but it just doesn't really, it's not the same. So I think, uh, I think that'll be interesting to, 
to track. But uh, yeah, I think that's about it in terms of topics for this episode. So uh, unless you have anything else you wanted to hit on, Damien? Um, not really. I mean, I, I maybe just to the last point that you made, like we've had only, of course, right now, just what one week of the grass season in Surbiton and also now just, you know, just Monday when we're recording this, you're probably going to hear it, you know, maybe, maybe on Monday if you're very quick. But um, I just wanted to say that, like, it, it, you can even see it in terms of, like, the, the, the grass court experience. You can see that the guys who have looked the best so far and, like, look like the best movers, they are the veterans. I don't know, Andy Murray, um, Jordan Thompson, uh, Milos Raonic today. I mean, Milos Raonic on grass is a fantastic mover, actually, compared to most of the tour, which seems so wild because, you know, on hard courts, on clay especially, you're going to say that he's probably one of the worst movers. But on grass, he actually has, like, all the great footwork patterns, and that's not going to come to you naturally. You have to somehow... Um, somehow, you know, do the work. And even if, you know, as you said, practice is not going to exactly give you that. But at the same time, how many weeks can you actually practice on grass, right? Like between Ron Garros and Wimbledon, you're probably going to play one or two events and you have like, what, one, two weeks of practice every year? You're not going to just practice on grass randomly during the off season or something, unless you're crazy. And I don't know, you're, you're like Dennis Kudla and you're a crazy grass court specialist. But I don't think even Dennis Kudla practices on grass in the off season. So, so yeah, it, it's Justin rough. Brown, you know, just diving on the grass every December. Maybe, yeah. Maybe he actually does that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's definitely true because like the veterans are historically are, are the guys who do well, like Chilich and Murray and... Yeah, just players like that who just also racked up quite a lot of titles already, and just you just feel like their games are just better suited. I mean, Raonic is crazy, like two years off tour, and now he's he's just beat Kachmanovic very comfortably, and it was like it was you know barely any rest for someone who's been off tour for two years. So it's impressive, certainly. But uh, but yeah, um, excited about the grass season, and just excited to see how Egan Carlos, of course, do. And uh, be sure to check us all out. You can follow us at, on Twitter at, at Iga Carlos Tennis. And also, you know, check us out on Spotify, Apple. Leave a, leave a comment, leave a rating. Any comments is is helpful. We, we'd love to hear from, from you guys, uh, the listeners. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned for more. Uh, so yeah, thanks again, Damien. And uh, we can sign it off here. <laughs>